Hello again, dear listener. This, as you may have correctly guessed, is the start of the show. Welcome to Find, a previously recorded evening of storytelling and otherwise. This episode took place on October 30th, 2017 at the Lido, which is on the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations, or Vancouver, BC. You'll be hearing from some of the great lineup of writers and comedians we had that night, including Sophie Buttle, Chris Evans, and Jen Suk Fung Lee. Throughout the episode, you'll hear music from Ivory Towers, who you can find on iTunes and Bandcamp. The track we've started the show with today is Either Or. And I'm your host, Cole Nowicki. Let's get on with it. Enjoy the show. time that well. I say my name, I look down, everyone claps, makes me feel nice, thanks. Um, lately I've been really into this one column on, uh, on Slate.com. It's, uh, it's a, a, a news website. And this column is Slate's weekly corrections. And it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Um, Slate's editors collect all the mistakes from the articles throughout the week and they compile a list, and then they publish it. And like, none, none of the mistakes are very big. It's like a spelling error, or like there's a percentage point off on an infographic, or maybe someone has misstated saying that NAFTA was ratified on de- December 18th, 1992, when in actuality, NAFTA was ratified on December 17th, 1992. But it's just, it's just small. <laughs> Every, everyone knows that. It's just small stuff. Like, it's not, it's small potatoes. Um, and I just... I really enjoy this column, and I was trying to figure out why, and I think I have. I think it reminds me of my, my, uh, my Catholic upbringing. Because essentially, Slate's weekly corrections is just like journalistic confessional. That's really just what it is. And once I figured out that connection between this column and I, it made me realize that, because I don't, I don't subscribe to any particular religion anymore, I'm not, I don't follow the Catholic faith anymore, so I don't, I don't have that, uh, that confessional option at all in my life. And I know confessional in general is kind of a weird concept, but it's, it's cathartic, you know? It's, uh, you, just, you get stuff off your chest and you feel better afterwards. And I, I don't have anything like that in my life anymore. But what I do have is a monthly storytelling show that I host wherein a bunch of people gather into a room with the intent to listen, and I'm going to take advantage of that tonight. And I'm going to share with you my, uh, my personal corrections for the month of October. And it's, it's nothing big. It's just like the day-to-day stuff, you know? It's like the, the uh, NAFTA ratification date errors of everyday life. So these are my personal corrections for the month of October. And I just, I just start right at the beginning of the month. I make a lot of mistakes. On October 1st, 
Cole let a stranger into his apartment building without first asking if they also lived there. <laughs> the stranger had a cute dog, potentially a Pomeranian cross, which may have contributed to this error. In an October 2nd phone call with his older brother, who has less defined triceps on himself, Cole inaccurately stated the amount of weight he'd bench pressed at the gym earlier that afternoon. That, that happens, it's a common mistake. In an October 4th business email to his colleague, Cole misspelled the client's name, Bruce Teller, as that condescending piece of shit. During an October 6th house party, Cole misidentified how many beers he actually had left in his bag when a friend asked if he could spare one. Cole said that he had one left, when in actuality, he had four. Four cold, crispy brews. At an October 7th brunch with friends, Cole misstated, saying that he was getting the vegetarian option because he decided a few weeks previous to give up eating meat and had not broken veg since. While in reality, he had ordered and eaten bacon for lunch the previous day when he forgot what the acronym BLT stood for. His hangover may have contributed to this error. In an October 10th business email to his client, Bruce Teller, Cole accidentally forwarded Bruce a document from the email chain that he had previously called him a condescending piece of shit in. Someone's done that. During an October 12th ride in public transit, Cole mistakenly made eye contact with the man across from him who was cursing into his cell phone. The man loudly asked, do you have a goddamn problem? To which Cole responded, baby, I'm, I'm, not, around these, I'm not from around these parts. Which only confused and angered the man further. <laughs> Due to production error, Cole's Saturday, October 14th, thoughtful morning smoothie that he surprised his romantic partner with for breakfast contained strawberries, which she is severely allergic to. During an October 14th conversation with his romantic partner following their thoughtful morning smoothies, Cole misstated, saying that, what the, what the hell, it's like you're mumbling through a mouthful of margarine. When he should have said, you don't sound so great, dearest. Are you okay? Do you, do you need me to get your EpiPen? <laughs> During an October 14th visit to the emergency room, Cole misstated when asked by the nurse how his romantic partner suffered her allergic reaction, saying her breakfast had strawberries in it, she's allergic, not clarifying that it was he who made the mistake of putting the strawberries in her breakfast, subsequently leading the nurse to ask her why she would normally put strawberries in her own breakfast if she knew she would have an adverse reaction. She could not respond to the nurse due to her tongue being swollen and filling her mouth like an inflated inner tube, leaving her only able to look at Cole with a mixture of confusion and anger, not dissimilar to how the man on the bus had, as Cole mistakenly spoke for her again, saying that she didn't mean it, it was, it was just an accident. <laughs> on October 15th, Cole should have said something, anything at all to his romantic partner about what happened the day before but he failed to do so. That, that's what I was looking for. <laughs> In an October 17th business email from a superior, Cole was asked to follow up with his client, Bruce Teller, who had not responded in over a week. Cole did so, however, referring to Bruce as Big B in the greeting was likely inappropriate. In an October 20th oversight, Cole let the Pomeranian cross in its owner, 
the stranger back into his apartment building. However, the Pomeranian Cross was wearing this adorable little dog sweater with the phrase, bad to the bone, spelt out on it, spelt out on it and get this, little doggy chew bones. <laughs> During a conversation with an acquaintance on October 24th, Cole mistakenly bid farewell with a colloquialism, happy hump day. It was, it was Tuesday. In an October 25th business email from Bruce Teller, in which Bruce wrote the sentence, this condescending piece of shit is so sorry to have kept you waiting, Cole mistakenly began his reply with, my man, Big B, happy hump day. <laughs> which was technically correct, since it was Wednesday, but unfortunately, a grossly inappropriate response to the serious nature of the email. a lot of mistakes. While receiving October 26 verbal lashing from a superior over his response to the Bruce Teller email situation, Cole misstated, explaining to her the many frustrating ways in which Bruce Teller is actually a total condescending piece of shit. To which she responded, he might be, but he's a condescending piece of shit who was going to pay us a lot of money. On October 27th, while collecting all of his belongings from his office at work in a sad, small cardboard box, Cole mistakenly grabbed a stapler, staple remover, a hole punch, seven Sharpies of various colors, and a Tupperware container with fancy metal clasps, none of which were his. Arriving home on October 27th in a state of deep personal sorrow after eating the cabbage rolls from the Tupperware container, Cole found comfort in the latest cute sweater the Pomeranian Cross was wearing as it and the stranger waited at the door of his apartment building. This sweater, emblazoned, emblazoned with many tiny Pomeranian crosses, wearing even tinier Pomeranian cross wearing sweaters on it. The stitched Pomeranian crosses wearing Pomeranian crosses into an Escher-like infinity. <laughs> Cole thought this profound in some way before mistakenly letting the dog and the stranger back into his apartment building, if only because of the little life it provided a steadily waning soul. It was a long month. While returning home from a Halloween party on the morning of Saturday, October 28th, Cole mistakenly did not remove the large bobble-headed mask from his Bob the Shady subcontractor costume, which no one at the party seemed to understand was a hilarious rift on Bob the Builder. The mask then obscured his vision and prevented him from seeing the dog shit in the hallway that he then stepped in and subsequently tracked through his building and into his suite where he smeared it across the laminate flooring, past the empty space where his romantic partner's computer desk used to sit before she moved out the week previous, citing his overt carelessness and insensitivity as a viable basis upon which to cease the romantic partnership, eventually reaching his bed that he promptly, felt, that he promptly crawled under the covers of and fell asleep in. Bob Bobblehead and Shoes still on. I've been fine since. Thank you, for Thank you for listening to that. I feel, I feel a lot better. Let's, uh, let's move on with the show. Up first, we have the mighty talented comedian, Sophie Buttle, who you may have seen at Just for Laughs on Kevin Hart's LOL Network or co-hosting her awesome secret monthly stand-up show here in Vancouver called Barely Legal. And here she is, Sophie Buttle. Hi everybody. Um, so unfortunately, I am a comedian, and I don't. I'm not like the kind of comedian that does stories at all. Um, so I'm just gonna do my jokes, and like we can pretend that they're intermingled, but they're very separate. And I want you to know that. 
But like, what, give it up again for those guys. That was such a wonderful story. That was so great. It was so great that I feel bad for what stuff I'm gonna say now. <laughs> Pretty embarrassing. So let's get into it. Um, do you guys marijuana at all? Is that part of your lives? That's cool. Um, I have a weird relationship with pot because my dad uh, is a chicken. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> my dad is a big stoner. And like, you know, when your parents do something, it doesn't even really seem cool. It's just kind of like, oh, dad's laughing pretty hard at my soccer game. I don't appreciate it. <laughs> and my dad used to smoke a lot of pot when I was little. And I'd smell pot smoke all the time. And I'd be like, yo, daddy, oh, what's that smell? And my dad would always just tell me that he farted. <laughs> yeah, so I was really confused for a long time. I used to think that my dad and his friends would get together outside to fart for fun. Um, and like, I don't think that it was bad that my dad smoked pot or anything. Like, obviously it was irresponsible and he shouldn't be a parent, but, <laughs> but like, it wasn't bad. Like, like, it didn't turn me into like a pothead or anything. I don't really like smoking pot. Like sometimes I'll have a little at like a party or something, but I don't like the taste of it. I feel like I'm eating farts. It's very gross to me. <laughs> what I will sometimes do though is have a pot cookie. And if you guys have never had an edible, it's a lot of fun. Cause what happens is you eat one and then you wait like half an hour and you don't really feel anything yet. So you eat another one. Uh, and then the ambulance comes. Um, <laughs> And I really like to have a pot cookie and then watch a movie, because when I'm stoned, I get very moved by cinema. <laughs> like, you know when you're all high and you're like, this is so good. <laughs> and like, it's fine if you're all high and you love something, but I always forget I was high when I saw something and I recommend it to everyone I know. <laughs> it destroys my credibility, <laughs> it's very bad. <laughs> I'll be like, there was a twist at the end and the character development was amazing. I cried. My friends were like, I'm not gonna watch a Tim Hortons commercial. Um, but I like watching movies with my boyfriend because he's always sober. So he can tell me that the movie that I loved wasn't actually good. It's very helpful. Cause like he doesn't do anything. He doesn't like drink or smoke pot or eat pot cookies. Even if I leave them out and say they're regular, like he won't. And like usually, I'm mostly fine with that he doesn't do drugs or anything. Like, if you don't want to do drugs, if you want to live in the past, that's your business. Like, like I'm very open-minded, you know? My only issue, my only issue with him not drinking or anything is that for myself, if I ever try something new in bed, it's because I'm, like, a little drunk. And I'm like, what if I was on top? Like, you know when you feel crazy? Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know people don't do that. Um, <laughs> But I don't believe in being on top. Um, but like my boyfriend doesn't drink or anything. So if he tries something new in bed, it's really weird. Like we were having sex and he slapped me in the face. I was like, oh my God, how much sugar did you have today? That's crazy. And uh, him and I went to the movies together a couple weeks ago and we were both really excited. He had a, a bunch of regular cookies and I had a pot cookie and we got there and there was nobody in the theater, and I get so excited when that happens, because you like look around and you're like, can we talk? You feel so alive. And, <laughs> and we got those, um, you know the D-Box seats? Um, what happened? Yeah, it like vibrates when stuff happens on screen. 
I like get action movies now. It, like it feels so good. Like I can't even. <laughs> and then also it was a Ryan Reynolds movie. So nobody was there. D-Box, Ryan Reynolds. Needless to say, I wanted to give my boyfriend a blowjob. And I wanted to. I thought that it would be fun. I thought everyone would love it. But um, he didn't let me. He said we were going to get arrested or something. Um, but I was very frustrated that he didn't want me to. I was like, we don't live in a country where I don't have rights. You have to let me do it. Um, but he wouldn't. And then I was like, have a few more gummy bears and see how you feel. Um, but still nothing. But luckily, I'm very entrepreneurial. I've come up with an invention to prevent this problem from ever happening again. Um, it's, it's for my boyfriend to wear. It's, it's for me to hide in. Um, it's kind of similar to, you know those um, breastfeeding bib blankets <laughs> that sometimes women will wear when they're breastfeeding in public to like hide their boobies and their baby? Like that, but for when I'm trying to blow my boyfriend in public. And like, well like he would like hold it and I would be like here. And like, obviously at first people are not gonna get it. Like people are gonna be judgmental like you guys. Um, <laughs> I know that. <laughs> But, like, if people walk by him and look at him judgmentally, he can just be like, hey, if you're sexualizing this, that's on you. <laughs> when people walk by and they're like, that's disgusting, he can just be like, what? She's hungry. <laughs> that's like a very woke feminist joke. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why you guys didn't like it. Uh, <laughs> very anti-breastfeeding community over here at the Lido. <laughs> Um, so when I was little, I don't know if you guys had this, but I really wanted to be a spy. Did you guys have that really hard too? I wanted to be a spy so bad and it was a big part of my, I was really into like Charlie's Angels and stuff and I was definitely like, I hope I'm hot enough to be a spy. And I just wanted to be the best spy that I could be, you know? And so I was like, I hope that I'm attractive enough to be like, and like obviously I am, but I chose to do comedy instead. It's no problem. <laughs> um, but like I wanted to be just like this hot spy. And then I realized that any woman would be a much more effective spy if she was very frumpy. <laughs> because if you're like all hot and you're trying to break into some secret organization, the security guard is gonna have so many questions for you. Like, you're gonna go up and he's gonna be like, oh, what's your name? How's your day going? <laughs> but if you're frumpy and you go up and you're like, I have to do this paperwork, they're like, ew, fine, go. <sighs> you know, hurry. <laughs> um, but I, I still try to do like spy stuff. Like I'll, like, I'll go through my boyfriend's phone and stuff. Like, I, <laughs> it's like amateur shit, but I'm really good. <laughs> um, and then the new spy thing in the world that I think is really cool right now is the iPhone 10 that's coming out because it has facial recognition. Like you just like, the one now it's like your thumbprint lets you in. And then the new one, you just like hold it up to your face and it unlocks your phone. And you can just like hold it up to your boyfriend's face when he's sleeping. Like don't even worry. <laughs> don't even stress about it. It's no problem. Um, but I think that it's really cool and it just like unlocks it. But a lot of people online are saying that it's bad, this thing, because they're saying like, oh, the government is putting together a database of our faces and it's this big conspiracy. And like people are commenting on Facebook like, oh, there's no way I'm getting this phone. The government's not getting my face. And it's like, Travis, you're commenting on Facebook. I can see you, like, I can see all your information. I don't know who you think you're hiding from. And it seems to be, 
it seems to be mostly guys that are freaking out about this, being like, oh, the government's looking at our face. And I think it's because the reason guys are freaking out and girls aren't really is because we're used to being looked at when we don't want to be. And this is like a new thing for guys and they can't handle it. <laughs> so I think the government should put out a statement for these guys just saying, like, smile, baby, why are you so sad? <laughs> You're gorgeous. <laughs> and, like, I think that girls, like, layering and putting on a bunch of clothes is the same as, like, when guys put tape on their webcams. <laughs> I just, like, I wish it was that easy for us, you know? Like, if a guy's looking at you and you feel weird about it, to just, like, go up to him and, like, put tape on his eyes. <laughs> That's the future I dream of. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll do one more thing and then I'll get out of here. Thank you, Cole. You're stunning. Um, uh, have you ever asked your significant other if they have any secret sexual fantasies? Like if you want to be in a fight for one week? Um, I asked my boyfriend if he had something, and he told me that he has a schoolgirl fantasy. And I was like, that's gross, but I'll do that for love, obviously. Um, what are you looking for? Like pigtails and schoolgirl outfit? Is that what you like? And he was like, no, I would just really love it if you went back to school. <laughs> That's all for me. Thanks a lot, everybody. Up next is Vancouver based writer and editor Chris Evans. His fiction, nonfiction, and poetry have appeared in Grain, The Literary Review, going down swinging, the New Quarterly, and other fine magazines and anthologies in Canada and abroad. He currently teaches kids to shake hands and read poems. And here he is, Chris Evans. Uh, my apologies for anyone who was expecting Captain America, Chris Evans. No, this is probably really disappointing. <clears throat> Um, I'm going to read two short stories tonight, and I'm going to decide right now what to read. Okay. Um, <clears throat> this is called Potential for Advancement. The woman had thick reddish hair and smiled warmly across the desk. As you may be aware, teamwork, along with diversion and diversity and inclusion, is one of the core values of our organization. Could you tell me about your experiences working as part of a team? She tapped at his CV with a silver ballpoint pen. Gloff's eyes tracked the pen's movement like it was an eel, and he had to look away to keep himself from snatching it to pop in his beak. Er, uh, certainly, he said. Uh, actually, to be honest, I haven't had much recent experience in that area per se. I mean, I used to work in conjunction with the rest of my brood, but that was decades ago before the banishments. Gloff flared his gills to slow his speaking. My current skill set is mostly dictated that I work in isolation, sadly. But I'm willing and eager to learn. I think of myself as a real people creature. <laughs> Terrific. The woman nodded and made a note on the CV. Describe to me your perfect work environment. Wet and humid, I guess. Musty. Dank, the woman offered. Yes, thank you. I, I couldn't think of the word. He tugged at his mandibles. Dank. Great. Uh, on your resume, I see you've listed devouring under special skills. 
She wrapped the pen lightly against her white teeth. Could you expand on that? That is a question that I am so glad you asked. He couldn't tell if the baring of her teeth was meant to be threatening or a show of arousal. Well, traditionally, I've devoured in the nonprofit sector and mostly on a pro bono basis. Someone will come to me with a quantity of material they need disposed of, a few bales of moldering hay, for example, or a number of injured ponies or small horses, and I will discreetly rid them of their burden. Perhaps a more apt description would be ingestion. And you feel that ability would have applications in a business such as this. Oh, absolutely. Gloff leaned back in the chair, his tentacles fanned to their fullest extent. I imagine I can save this company thousands of dollars a year in document, document shredding costs alone. Not to mention obsolete electronics, toner cartridges, less than suitable interns. And I wouldn't need expensive equipment or even an office to do so, just a parking space or a corner of the warehouse, and maybe a tarp. <laughs> the chair groaned beneath him. Gloff lurched forward as he tried to readjust his weight. His scales rasped against the desktop's edge. In that regard, I believe I would be a valuable you know, asset. Sure, sure. The woman nodded again, tilting her head to the side so her hair brushed her shoulder. Gloff had witnessed this head-bobbing maneuver once before in a group of reptilian distant cousins who performed it as they circled and encroached on the Kodiak bear. Even more alarming, Gloff thought the woman's smile might have hardened a bit. Definitely not a signal of estrus. He began to secrete. Tell me, Gloff, if I were to tell, ask a previous employer for <clears throat> one positive quality of yours and one negative, what do you think they would say? Gloff's hearts began to race each other as he searched for an answer. I suspect they would always say I would give 100%. Really, I'm a perfectionist. Conversely, I suppose I don't always know when to stop. I mean, sometimes I get so involved in a project, sorting mail or constructing a burial mound, that I forget to sleep which I can't do anyway, obviously, because I don't have eyelids, but I'm sure you get my point. Gloff felt his quills start to distend, and he wrapped his tentacles around the armrest to keep from toppling. My work ethic has been described as intense. <laughs> Name one occasion on which you experienced conflict on the job. How did you deal with it? Were you satisfied with the outcome? Gloff had been dreading this line of questioning. I can't think of one, no. Maybe he wasn't cut out for the service industry after all. Maybe it was better to be penniless, free from authority, alone in the cavern, and so, so dank. <laughs> what about your last job? The woman scanned the paper. Country kitchen? You're only employed there for two weeks. Yes, right, that. His tentacles twisted over themselves. It was all a misunderstanding, really. I see, and could you elaborate on the basis of that misunderstanding? Reflexively, Gloff's defense pores blossom to release lubricant. He could feel himself slicking across the vinyl seat of the chair, sliding away from another job, from a fresh start. No, wait, I just... Listen. Okay, listen, lady, it's kind of a long... Look, the supervisor said I wasn't front of house the material. Naturally, I was deeply insulted, clear case of discrimination, and, well, we could have argued all day about who said what and who severed whose arm, but the point is, I did as I was asked. Instead of retreating back to Mount Tacupapec, I went to the dish pit and scrubbed out all the gravy terrines and finished my shift. So yes, in some ways, the outcome was satisfactory. The woman placed the pen on the desk and stood. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Her faltering smile again flared to full brilliance, an explicit display of dominance. Neurochemicals flooded Gloff's body. But it wasn't my fault. 
His mandibles spread and dripped. It wasn't a good fit for either party. This time will be different. It was a pleasure, Gloff, she nodded towards the door. Best of luck. In the foyer of another building, Gloff studied himself in a mirrored wall panel and smoothed his scales, flicking grease onto the tile. Using a silver pen, he levered a small white tooth from between his large yellowing ones and spit it into the pot of an ornamental palm. In the elevator, he practiced speaking slowly and concisely. I always give 100, no, 110%. <laughs> he wiped a mat of auburn hair from his CV and flattened it for his next appointment. I will be the most valuable of assets. Opioids continue to pulse through his system, anesthetics against the new world. You will accept me as I am. You will submit. Thanks. Okay, so <clears throat> second piece, again, very short. Um, I had started writing as a memoir um, about growing up in Victoria, um, and then I went left with it and it had to be a fiction piece. Uh, it is, I, I don't know why I need you to know this, but the protagonist in this piece is older than I actually am now, would be if they were alive. I, I don't know why that's important to me. I'm, I'm younger than this. Um, <laughs> It's called, I don't think so. We got high and followed, Mar followed people in Marnie's old Plymouth. It was 1991. Her big sister let her have the car when it was too embarrassing to drive anymore. The rear seat was slung so low you needed help to get out, and the fabric that lined the roof back there had peeled off so it bubbled down like a veil in an opium den. The car we were tailing was some kind of sedan, gray or maybe blue. I couldn't tell because I was wearing my sunglasses with the red lenses. The lenses turned all the blues and greens and grays into charred blood clots, and the whites and pinks and yellows into electric magma. The black stayed black. It was summertime, hot and cruel. The sedan was driven by an older couple, buttoned-down suburbanites, which enraged Marnie, who I hadn't slept with yet and might never. Marnie hated the establishment and all their trappings, cardigans, dental care, expensive cheeses. She thought that anyone who made better choices than she did should fuck off and die, like, like actually die. We followed the couple out of the parking lot at Town and Country Mall and up the old island highway away from the city. Marnie plugged in her Sonic Youth Goo cassette, and when the intro to Cool Thing came on, she cranked up the stereo, the already half-blown speakers translating the music into trebly shards of raw noise and gun dits. We were right alongside them. As we smoked our cigarettes and stared them down, the woman rolled up her window, panicky, stricken, and mouthed either, what do you want, or one to two wands. <laughs> Marnie and I just laughed and drifted back behind them. This continued through the outskirts, past the car dealerships and the mini golf, and further from town, up the mountain. The man in the driver's seat kept turning around and looking back at us. Eventually, Marnie started to do the same, look back and after a while turned Sonic Youth down and said, I think we're being followed. While she was distracted, the sedan faded off into the parking lot of Abino's family restaurant, the driver's eyes a flash of relief in the mirror. I looked in the side view in time to see another crimson land boat, another Chrysler, looming on my side, some tinny squall from the Chrysler's stereo cutting through the wind that screamed through our open windows. There was a girl in the driver's seat and a boy riding shotgun in glass sunglasses like us. 
their cigarettes hung slack, ashes jetting behind them to pile in the back seat. I leaned out the window and shouted, one to two wands. They laughed and their car dropped behind ours. Marnie smacked the dashboard and said, those callous fucks. Sometimes Marnie was the wrong kind of too much. At the stoplight by the abandoned water slides, they pulled up next to us and the driver, the girl said, you're in the wrong car. She was right. I got out, left my door hanging open and crawled across her lap to sit between the two of them. Marnie swore bloody revenge and turned off, the passenger door slamming back into the frame. We continued up the highway. They were siblings and blonde. I didn't know their music, some kind of European brutalism with horns. I asked the girl if we could start dating now, but she just smirked and threw her cigarette out the window into the dry grass. I asked if I could kiss her and she said no. Her brother said I could kiss him and I did, but I didn't like it. We drove through sleepy shit-kicker towns until the angry lava sky began to darken, our, our lungs swelling with an acrid haze. A maroon shape scuttled into the road and the girl swerved to hit it. It thumped and winged past, inert eyes, spattered teeth. I asked if I could take my sunglasses off and lie down for a bit, but the brother said no. He lit another cigarette with something oily inside. The girl kept checking her rear view and said, I think we're being followed. Headlights backlit the cabin. Our faces were red, red, red. At the stoplight by the burnt out motel, a sedan pulled alongside us, blue or maybe green, radio cranked to a moderate volume, AM gold, my parents. My mother leaned out the window. You're in the wrong car. I got out over the brother's laugh and tried to climb in between my mother and father. My father hiked his thumb, back seat squirt. The Chrysler peeled off to the left, birds flipped through the windows, and we kept going, up the highway, up the mountain. My father reached back, yanked the sunglasses from my face, and sent them spiraling into the night. Do up your belt. My mother handed back an afghan she'd been knitting, needles still tucked in her hair, and a glass of warm milk. Amid the blackness, under roof fabric that didn't sag, I lay down across the seat to a lullaby of buttercream vocals and airbrushed guitar and slept like my 18 years had never even happened or ever would again. Thanks. Our final storyteller of the evening was Jan Suk Fong Lee. She was born and raised to Vancouver's east side and she now lives with her son in North Burnaby. Her books include The Conjoined, a finalist for the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize, the Better Mother, a finalist for the City of Vancouver Book Award, The End of East, and Gentlemen of the Shade. Jen appears regularly as a contributor on the next chapter on CBC Radio 1 and the writer's studio with Simon Fraser University. Here's Jen Suk Fung Lee. I got nothing. I should just go. Hi. Um... So it's Halloween-ish, and I have a story about witches for you. So when um, my last novel came out last, uh, last year, I've been promoting books for about two years. I'm really tired. This is my last thing for like a year. You guys are very lucky. Um, I'm exhausted. Um, anyway, I went to Kamloops to do a reading, as one does, and um, the librarian there was very lovely. She was lovely. Um, and I was reading at the library, and she came to pick me up, and we went for lunch. And within about like 10 minutes of me knowing her, she told me, she said to me, she whispered, actually she grabbed my shoulders and whispered, I have the sight. And I'm like, okay, like great, 
cool. And she's like, I know things about everybody. I can see things about you. And I'm like, oh, no, because that could be bad. Um, and then we went and did the reading, and it was fine. I had a PowerPoint, so it went really well. And um, then she took me to the airport, and I was texting my sister because uh, my flight was delayed, and she needed to go walk my dog. And um, I'm texting my sister. And the librarian grabs my hands, and she yelled, like yelled, in the airport, oh my god, you have the mark of the witch. And I said, I do. <laughs> and so apparently, I have, it's true, you can see them. I'll show you all later. Come and ask me. Um, I have a six-pointed star in the middle of both my palms, which apparently is the mark of the witch. Um, it has something to do with stigmata. I'm not really sure. She explained it to me, but I wasn't really listening because I was still processing the idea of me being a witch. And then she said to me, um, do you cast spells? And I'm like, do I? Um, and, I, and then all these things started happening and I started remembering all the weird things that had happened in my life and I said, well, sometimes I see dead people. And this was the first time I'd ever vocalized this. And um, so basically um, what happens is sometimes in the middle of the night, um, my dead relatives come to see me and um, they're my grandparents, my father or my niece who have all passed. And um, oftentimes, well, all the time, I'm like half awake. Um, sometimes they talk, sometimes they don't. My grandfather has a disconcerting habit of just standing there and staring at me silently. Um, uh, my grandmother talks a lot. She tells me all about her regrets. Um, and she wears a toque because my grandmother wore a toque inside and out um, every day of the year because um, it was Canada and she had to wear a toque to protect herself from the cold inside and out. Um, and, um, you know, my dad says really boring things like, look after your mother. Um, so I told her this, and I said, but, you know, like, I could be dreaming, and maybe it's just me processing grief and loss. And then I said, you know, I only ever see dead people who are related to me. And she's like, well, how would you know if you saw dead people who were strangers? Because you wouldn't know they were dead. Um, and I'm like, that's a good point. And, and you could all be dead. I mean, I don't know. And it's cool. I'm like Bruce Willis. And so she said to me, you know, it's really too bad. I think my grandmother's busy. Because um, she usually stands right there by that pillar in this airport. She's been dead for 10 years, but I, she must be busy, whatever it is that dead people do. And um, I was like, that's great. So um, anyway, as it ended up happening, she ended up doing a tarot reading for me and told me all sorts of stuff. That's my witch story. Um, I do actually see dead people. But... Um, I'm going to read, I wrote a poem. See, the thing is, is that I mostly write novels, but um, I've been starting to write poems lately, the last few years. Um, and you're a captive audience, so you're going to have to hear it. It's my witch poem. I don't know if you're clapping for me, but that's cool. Um, so thank you. Uh, so this is called Stigmata. You have the mark of the witch. Turn your palms up, look closely at the middle. There, a star, a stigmata from a past life when you were thrown into a winter-cold river, left to sink if you were merely human, dragged out and hung for evil if you floated. The rapids were vicious, yet in your fists were sprigs of rosemary that you tore from the bush as the men carried you out of your cottage and through the garden. For memory, you thought, so they will not forget their shame. As you drowned, the jagged woody ends pierced the skin on your palms, and you saw the blood swirl upward to the surface, white swells, red wisps that spun like baby hair, and then were gone. You listen to the woman who claims she has the sight. She asks, are you a conjurer? And you say to your surprise, yes. There were the imagined men you wrote into poems who then became real. There was the restlessness you wrote into your novel, and when your marriage died, you wondered what you had called into being. 
There was your father, your grandfather, and especially your grandmother. Once, well past midnight, you opened your eyes and the neighbor's porch light spilled over the edge of the bed. It was here your grandmother sat perched like a gargoyle slowly coming to life. By then, she had been dead for 25 years. She said, they never knew me. They thought I was cruel. Silent, you watched her cry transparent tears. You wondered if you should touch her, but you knew that your hand would open and close and grasp nothing at all. In the morning, you couldn't remember how she had left. Maybe she walked, maybe she faded away, maybe she kissed your forehead before flying out the window nimble and weightless. Cradling your hands in her lap, the seer asks another question. Do you get everything you want? You hesitate. No. Well, yes. She looks at your face, eyes following the lines of your mouth set hard in your jaw. Did he hurt you? Does he scare you? And you don't bother answering because you both already know he hurt you many times on purpose and by accident. The intent never mattered. You resolve to write a poem that wishes him away, a place where the desert grows truncated pine trees, bushes that are gray-green against the dust rising every time a car passes on the two-lane highway. He'd like it there. As far as the eye can see, he will be the tallest one. In the cramped living room, her three-year-old dancing to a cartoon on the television behind you, she traces your lifeline with her fingernail. So many slashes, here and here. She takes a sip of water and then, were you a child? What happened? Before you can reply, she whispers, I'm so sorry. She turns your hand to the side. There is another marriage in your future. She smiles. This time you'll be happy. He's been waiting for you. Someone is smoking weed in an upstairs bedroom and you blink against the smell. Well, you say, where can I find this man? She passes you a slice of apple taken from a plastic container shaped like a bunny's head and laughs. You're a witch, you tell me. It's all true. <laughs> I really did write that poem and that man really did move away. Somewhere where there are very short bushes. Um, so there's this thing that I do where I write things into my poems or my novels that come true um, that uh, a poem talks about. And when I met my, um, my first husband, because there's going to be more, um, he, <laughs> I, I met him and I was like, I think I know you. And I realized, I went back into like my poetry archives because I was like 21, I had archives. And um, you know, I had written a poem that was about him when I was 18. Um, and then when I wrote The Conjoined, there's like a failing relationship in there and um, where this woman just gets bored and <laughs> leaves her partner and then my marriage died. So who knows what <laughs> happened. Um, I also have a tendency to write um, about um, psychopathic children um, and, uh, you know, like, uh, well, dead children in freezers, um, and also children who push each other off cliffs into the ocean. I hope that never happens um, to any of you or me. Um, so I, I only want the best for all of us. Um, so sometimes I think I have to write poems about like dogs or like happy love affairs or, or novels where good things happen, but I don't know, I don't, it's just not. Just, it's never going to happen. So related to that topic, um, I wrote this poem about novels. Um, so meta, it's disgusting. Um, it's called Third Person Intimate. You're used to writing novels, to placing a human in the middle of a slowly unwinding nighttime dilemma, moonlight in puddles around her rock-heavy feet. Your psychologist would say you write the choices you're afraid to make. The women in your books are bad mothers. They leave their children, sit with regret in their laps as if it were an overfed cat sharpening its claws on the arm of the living room chair. 
You have never, you would never, and yet. Your poor protagonist face up to watch the meteor shower symbolically arcing across the August sky. She never really had a chance. So my next novel is gonna be about Munchausen by proxy, so <laughs> sorry in advance. Um, so I'm just gonna read like one more poem for you. Um, and uh, this is kind of a longish one, but it, like, no, not long, it's like one page. Um, I don't wanna scare you. Um, and uh, it's called Introduction. It kind of touches on all of these subjects because I'm a novelist. I like to summarize things for people. This is what you'll need to understand. Cameron Crowe is to blame for everything. It's true. Sunshine is an insult. You may never learn to swim, but so what? A dog is the love of your life, and the pretty poems are easy. The books are the only things that you have left behind that make sentence by sentence sense. You think hearts break all the time, but that doesn't come close to explaining away the vomit in the toilet from crying and drinking, or the red welts on your shins because you will not stop scratching, or the bone deep certainty that when this ends, people will say, she was full of life, a loving friend, when you know it's only half true, or maybe not even. You deserve punishment, self-inflicted or otherwise. The hearts you break matter less and less. This is a lie, see above. Your greatest worry is that your son will grow up to be just like you. Laundry does not fold itself, and you still don't know what doubling down means. You can shout anything you want through the open windows, warnings, spells, limericks. The wind will suck it all up, turn every wish or curse meaningless as they are blown into fragments, hurled against power lines and trees dying from the tops down. There is a purpose to this, of course. It is the act of casting them outward, of yelling so loudly that your body caves inward with the effort, your abdominals hard as stone for the first time ever. This is necessary. Without it, you would stay soft and silent, curled like a baby mouse in holes too small for a human thumb. Protect your child, even though you know you can't. Being smarter hasn't helped much. Stand up straight. So you will always try. There is no alternative, is there? You can beat it winter for weeks and weeks, and spring will eventually arrive, and you can trick yourself into believing it came for you. The tips of crocuses, the early dawn, the thickening light, all because you called them into being with your rage, with the furious living you did in the winter dark, mascara-like icing, purple underwear, perfume in the space between your breasts. This violence, this volume, is how you will try to change everything. Fearing the outdoors keeps people alive. Never trust the man in the long coat. Tread softly, your friends say. Be quiet. And you laugh because you've heard this your whole life, even as you cracked your knuckles and screamed into your phone on a public street and combed the sweat through your hair with grubby hands. Writers are supposed to be introverts, and you laugh even harder. The hurt will fuck you up, but you will appear fine. And this, above all else, is your gift. That's it. Thank you. Well, that's it. The show is over now. Thanks again to all the storytellers, Ivory Towers, the Lido for having us, and you, dear listener, for listening. We'll leave you with Ivory Towers, No Devil Lived On.